Well, let's get right into the Word this morning. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you uh, to open them up to Luke chapter 16 today. Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 19. This is the start uh, of a new series we call the Pivot Series. You know, a pivot is a turning point. A pivot is a moment in time where everything changes for you. Whether it's because of a conversation or some experience or some event, a pivot point is the change point. It is a point of demarcation from one place to the point of something else. We all have those kind of pivot points in our lives. Sometimes someone says, well, when you graduate from high school, that's a pivotal moment where everything becomes different. Someone else says, well, it's when someone proposes to you or you say yes to a proposal for marriage, everything changes. Someone says, a pivotal moment for me is when I had my first child. And that pivotal moment was uh, life-changing for me. We have pivotal moments personally. Pivotal moments politically. Pivotal moments physically. Who can forget Martin Luther King's speech, I Have a Dream? Who can forget the day John F. Kennedy died? Or you remember 911 when our lives were so dramatically changed by the first terrorist act in America. Pivotal moment. Luke chapter 16, 17, 18, and 19 is that section in the Gospel of Luke where we have pivotal conversations where Jesus brings up subjects and lives are different from that moment forward. I have a feeling this morning that for some of you today, this conversation right here, right now, is going to be a pivotal moment in your life. You're going to hear some things you don't often hear. We're going to talk about some subjects that are uncomfortable to talk about, but today we're going to look that what Jesus says about the afterlife, and in particular, what Jesus says about the subject of hell. It's going to change everything you think about life and everything you think about eternity. And Jesus' words are designed to do exactly that. Would you please stand with me as we read God's word today, beginning in Luke chapter 16, verse 19. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyous, living in splendor every day. And a poor name, man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried in Hades. You understand the word Hades later as we explain it to also mean hell. He lifted up his eyes being in torment. And saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus so he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue. For I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus' bad thing. But now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and to the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. Father, today my prayer is that we will have our spiritual eyes opened and our understanding able to grasp 
what eternity looks like on both sides of the picture. And Father, today I pray that you will speak to each one of us in a personal way because we know that one day we'll each stand before you personally. So God, I pray you'll prepare us for that day. I ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Please be seated if you would. This is the first in several pivotal conversations. Next week we'll be looking at what Jesus says about his return. We sing about his return. We sing about that one day, that glorious day, and next week we'll look at that. But before that day, we're looking at this subject called hell. Now, in these pivotal conversations, Jesus has one goal in mind that overrides everything else. And if you look ahead to Luke 19, verse 10, you'll see what that idea is. What he's pursuing is this. For everyone in this room today, this is Jesus' motive. And for us as we read, and for me as I preach, this is my motive. He says in verse 10 of chapter 19, for the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. Jesus' motivation is always one of compassion, one of mercy. He's always wanting to draw those people that are far from him close to him. And then he gives us this particular story. Some call it a parable, but it's unlike any other parable. This story has details. This story has names. This story has depth. It's different. And in this story, Jesus talks about the afterlife in Hades, or as we understand it, hell. Now, we need to know that Jesus talked about hell quite frequently. In fact, he spoke about hell more than he did heaven. He spoke about hell almost as much as he did about the money that he spoke about so often. And so some very uncomfortable subjects Jesus was able to bring up all the time. What about your money and your heart? What about hell and the afterlife? Here he speaks about hell. Now, hell is not as popular as it used to be in terms of the way people believe in it. I don't think hell has ever been popular, but it's certainly not popular to talk about today. Over the last 20 years, according to one article I read recently, more and more Americans have ceased to believe in hell. Today, a late survey said that 71% of people in America no longer believe in hell. Heaven, by contrast, fares much better among mindsets. We all believe in heaven. In fact, we all kind of believe that we'll go to heaven one day. And so the conversation about hell has diminished. The conversation about heaven has increased. Think of the number of books that you've read about someone that has been on the cusp of death, on the threshold of death, but comes back and talks about this glorious place called heaven, full of light and full of joy and full of compassion. And all, that is, uh, all the attention afforded that is immense. But we don't read much about someone that gets on the verge of death and comes back and reports about hell. In fact, hell today is often the subject of joke. It's a common word we use to curse with, in a sense. Look at some of the notions today, the modern notions about hell. Some say God is too loving of a God to create a hell. So there is no real validity to the subject or the topic or the place of hell. I've heard other people say this. They've said, I, I like living the party life, and so I don't mind if I'm going to be sent to hell. I'll go live in hell and have a party with all those friends I'm partying with now. After all, if the devil is in charge of hell, we'll have a good time. I want to warn you today that the devil is not in charge of anything, much less hell. It's a place of torment for him as well. Some people say, I'm aghast that Jesus would be so graphic about human suffering. Why would he talk about the idea of torment and pain and heartbreak and agony and the people that will be there forever? And the short answer to that is he warns us. He tells us to warn us. 
When I was a young boy growing up in a small town in Oklahoma, we used to get up on Saturday mornings and take our bicycles out and ride up and down the streets. And there was a, there was a gas, gas station there that also had a record service not far from my house. And one day we drove by that gas station on our bicycles to see the car that had been totaled in a wreck a few nights before. And in that wreck, one of the starting uh, offensive linemen for our high school football team had been killed. He tried to take a curve too fast. He had hit uh, an abutment of, of a bridge and he was killed instantly. And his car was brought out to display on that main street of that small town so that everybody could go by and see it. I still remember getting off my bike and walking after that car very carefully, very slowly, and looking inside that car where the seat was, where the young man who died was. There was still blood on the seats. There were stains everywhere, blood, bloody clothing still in the front seat. I remember asking my dad, why did they bring that car out there? Why do we have to look at all that bad news? I mean, this young man died just a few nights before, and here was the car. And my dad said, they did that to warn you. So that one day, you would not take driving lightly. One day, you would not do the same thing. When we talk about hell, the compassion behind Christ is evident. He wants us to know about what will happen to those who do not believe him and those who do not follow him. It's not a mind of a God who is somehow sick or demented or who loves torturing people. It's a mind of a God who has both mercy and justice. And he's given us a warning about what will happen to those that reject him forever. All through this story, you're gonna find the contrast of dialogue and the man will be in the middle. And at the end of our day, you're going to see both sides of this picture because the contrasts are all the way through. But at the end of the day, you're gonna be the one in the middle. You'll be that rich man or you'll be Lazarus and you'll be making the call, making the decision to either respond to God or not respond to God. So let's walk through these contrasts together. Let's see how the story about hell gives us amazing contrast into life itself. First of all, I want you to notice the contrast between God's mercy and God's justice. Whenever we talk about the character of God and wherever we describe the personality of God, we love to talk about the compassion of God, but in order to have a full conversation, we also have to talk about the justice of God. God is a merciful God, he's a loving God, he's a, he's a compassionate God, he is a God of love, but in order for him to be God, he also has to be fair and just and holy. And so the doctrine of the character of God is evident even in the story that we're looking at today, the story about hell, the story about Hades. The reality is this story is disturbing. If I were to describe Hades, one commentator said, Hades is the invisible world into which the spirits of men are ushered upon death. And here in this story, we see both comfort and torment. We need to know that Jesus transformed Hades upon his resurrection to an intermediate state for the lost before ultimate hell, which is what we call in the Bible the lake of fire we read about in the book of Revelation. So we know this refers to both paradise and Hades, or heaven and hell, with a focus on hell in this story. And one of the questions we need to ask today is, is hell real? Is it real? In the Bible, Jesus spoke more about hell than anyone else did. He referred to hell as a real place. He described it in graphic terms. A fire that burns but doesn't consume. An undying worm that eats away at the damned. A lonely, foreboding darkness. Jesus talked about hell. And someone says, but what kind of God does that? 
How can Jesus being a loving Savior talk about a hell like this? And how do we actually justify the existence of hell created by a loving God? Those are great questions, philosophical questions that people have. Often when I speak to people about the gospel, they, they, they bring that up. They say, how is it that a God whose love can relegate, can send people who choose not to believe him to hell? Randy Alcorn, a great author, writes these words. Hell is not pleasant. It's not appealing. It's not encouraging. But neither is it evil. Rather, it's a place where evil is judged. Indeed, if being sentenced to hell is just punishment, then the absence of hell would itself be evil. In other words, for us to really judge evil, there must be a place by which to do that. Some hate the idea of hell because we love people too much to want them to suffer, but what about hell makes us recoil? Why, why do we shy away from the subject? Is it the wickedness that's being punished? Is it the suffering of those who may have turned to Christ? Do we cringe because we imagine that hell is too harsh a punishment for wickedness? Maybe we hate hell because we don't hate sin enough. Maybe we hate hell because we don't appreciate the holiness of God. I talk with people all the time about pretty weighty subjects. I find people don't mind the idea of hell at all for the Las Vegas shooter. They don't mind the idea of hell at all for ISIS murderers and for terrorists. They don't mind hell at all when we talk about that, but when we talk about hell for the average ordinary person, they recoil and they say, that's not right. You see, if we think that God's, that hell is God's overreaction to sin, we deny that he alone has the moral right to determine what the afterlife will be like. God is only God. He's the only God there is. He's sovereign God, and he has the choice, the ability to determine afterlife. By denying hell, we deny the existence of God's holiness, even his sovereignty. I want to warn you today about something that's very important for all of us. We cannot remake God in our image, and our understanding of holiness and justice is not adequate. Only God's is. Our own fallen sense of Sin, our fallen sense of justice just doesn't measure up to the God that we worship. So we ask the question, what's hell all about? It's really all about God showing mercy and God showing the clear difference between sin and obedience. In Luke chapter 15, verse 21, we see the compassion of God even before we get to the subject of hell. I want you to look over to verse 21 of Luke 15. Luke 15 is that great chapter that talks about the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son, the prodigal son. You know the story really well, where Jesus tells the story about the son that asked for the father's inheritance, and then he goes off and he lives with this inheritance and in what he's called riotous living. He spends his money on everything that's worthless. While the father remains at home and the older son remains at home, this son's disobedient. He's far, far from his father. But then the Bible says he comes to himself. He comes to the end of himself. And he comes to the realization that I have got to go back to my father. I don't deserve to go back. I don't deserve to be called a son. But I've got to go back because I've come to my senses. And there is no way out of this predicament unless I go back to the father. And then in verse 21, we pick up an amazing story of the compassion of God. The son said to him after he ran back, Father, I have sinned against heaven in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf 
and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come back to life again. He was lost and now has been found. And they began to celebrate. If you want to know where the compassion of God is, look no further than right there. Where that father was standing, waiting for that son to come to himself, to come to the end of sin and to come home. And when he came home, the father was looking from a distance and saw him and ran and embraced him. That is the compassion of God. And so when we look at the subject of hell, remember what precedes it. A father who is calling his children to himself. And only when those children say no to that call and no to that father do we learn about the existence of a place called hell. So God's mercy and God's justice is very clearly pointed out in this gospel and in this chapter. Mercy is the offer of life. If you want to know where the mercy of God is, it's in the mercy offer of life in Jesus. Then we see something else in verse 22 and 23, this contrast between acceptance and rejection. Dive into the text again with me in verse 22. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. You see, one is accepted, one is rejected. Lazarus has been gathered to Abraham. Literally, Abraham's bosom was the idea that all Jewish people love to think about, being able to sit down at the banquet table with Father Abraham, the father of our faith, the one who taught us to follow God, really the founder of our faith, is what they would say. And so this idea of one being with Abraham and one not, one accepted and one rejected is in itself a study of contrast. It's amazing. Really, as you begin to think about this text, everything in it's a contrast, and then all of a sudden it flips and reverses. I want you to walk with me through that text again and the story as you know it. When we first look at the story, we've got the wealthy man and the poor man. The wealthy man is inside the poor man is outside at the gates. The wealthy man is satisfied. The poor man is hungry. He eats the crumbs off the table. The wealthy man is happy, we presume, and the poor man is suffering. The happy man's at ease. The poor man's in torment. The happy man is well known. The poor man is unknown at that point. The happy man, the wealthy man, has a lavish funeral, and then the uh, beggar simply dies. But after death, everything switches. All of a sudden, the rich man is now poor. He has nothing. And the poor man is wealthy, spiritually speaking. The rich man is now outside. He's in hell. And the poor man is now inside. He's in heaven. The wealthy is deprived. And the poor is at the banquet table. The wealthy is suffering. The poor is satisfied. The wealthy is now tormented. The poor man is now happy. The wealthy has no name. And the poor man is now known. He's Lazarus. It's really kind of a surprising reversal. Basically, what, what the Jews would make of this, this kind of story would be that they would suppose that the wealthy man, the religious wealthy man, the man who did some moral good would be the one in heaven. And the poor man, obviously not blessed by God on earth, they would say, would not make it to heaven. But when it comes to the afterlife, everything is switched. When you watch Jesus teach about, talk about hell, every time he speaks about hell, there's a surprise in what he says. We're going to be surprised at who's in heaven. We're going to be surprised at who's in hell. I think that's part of the picture and the power of the story. 
is that we don't suppose that it always looks like that, but what Jesus is saying is there are some unusual and unique surprises, some contrasts. One will be allowed into heaven and the other cast to hell. And the picture here I want you to get is a solitary individual standing before a solitary God and determining, finding out what will my destiny be. It's a powerful picture. C.S. Lewis made a number of statements about hell and admitted the fact that he struggled with the idea of hell. He said, there is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this if it lay within my power. But I want you to kind of get and understand what hell really is. Hell is the result of telling God to get out. If you tell God to get out and leave you alone, finally God will say, as you wish. God does not predetermine our response. There are no verses in this Bible, not in my Bible, not in yours, that says that God predetermines the direction of each individual. But rather what God does is allows you to choose. When you reject him, you lose him. That's why the Bible describes lostness and hell as darkness. God is light, his absence is darkness. And when you tell God that you don't want him as Savior and Lord of your life, eventually you get your way. Even though you don't really know the end result of that and don't always believe the end result of that, you get your way. So there are two options. You live with God or you live without God. And if you say, I choose to live without God's ways, I would rather live for myself, you're rejecting heaven and accepting hell, which is an eternity without the presence of Christ. C.S. Lewis again writes this in The Great Awakening or The Great Divorce and The Problem of Pain. He put it this way. In the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is in itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To leave you alone? Alas, I'm afraid that's what he does. In the end, there are only two kinds of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, in the end, your will be done. Which side do you want to be on? That's a great question to ask. There is a side of acceptance, a side of rejection. Then thirdly, I want you to notice another contrast. And the most obvious one, the one we look at first, is the contrast between comfort and agony. In verse 22, we find all that being described. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried in Hades. He lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. Now, in order for you to get the words right, and for you to see exactly what Jesus is communicating here, two words come to our attention. First of all, of all the word torment. Torment describes the instrument of torture, literally. The instrument by which one is hurt or brought to pain and forced to tell the truth. In the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, that same word is translated weeping bitterly. The idea that Jesus is giving us is very clear. There's a tormenting time where people are literally weeping bitterly over the fact that they are in that place. They're quivering with anxiety, weeping bitterly because of the pain that comes upon them. The word agony is a second word we see. It refers to distress in body and mind. It means to be grief-stricken and sorrowful. Literally, hell is a place of solitary suffering and regret. Regret we didn't listen. Regret we didn't turn to Christ. 
Regret we didn't choose the mercy of God. Instead, we chose the justice of God. Regret that we thought we knew better than the Bible. John Piper says the misery of hell will be so great no one will want to be there. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Matthew 8, it describes that. Between their sobs, they will not speak the words, I want this. They will not be able to say amidst the flame of the lake of fire in Revelation 20, I want this. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they will have no rest day or night. Revelation chapter 14 says that. No one wants this. But friend, if you do not want God, you have said to God, I want that. I want that pain. I want that brokenness. I want that torment. Because God has said, this is what happens when you turn away from here. Here's the thing. Most of the people that I know who are rejecting Christ don't know these truths yet. Makes me want to grab them, draw them close to me and say, wake up, wake up. Because you're just a heartbeat away from not having another chance to turn, not having another chance to put your faith in Christ, not having another chance to repent. We have this amazing contrast between comfort and agony. The misery of hell is real. When I walked through this text the other day, I began to list the things that this text says about hell. And then things that I know to be true because of the absence of reference. And then the other references that speak to hell. I want you to look at this list I came up with. There's no water in hell. I think that's obvious by our text. There's no comfort in hell. There's no company in hell. Amazingly, there's no complaint in hell. This man in hell does not cry against God's sense of fairness or justice. He knows that it's the justice of God that has placed him there. There's no escape in hell. There's no silence in hell. There's the screaming of the voices that are in agony and pain. There's no repentance in hell. The time of the repentance has passed. There's no second chance in hell. We sing about hope. We talk about hope all the time. There's no hope in hell. There's no mercy in hell. And all that's true because there is no Savior in hell. You see, the reality of hell, it is the absence of God and the absence of Jesus and the absence of the compassion and the mercy and the kindness of God because that season has ended. It's available until the day you die and then it's over. Hell, at the briefest, simplest description, is life without God, without hope, without change, without help. Then there's a final contrast. See the man in the middle. See the woman in the middle. See the young person in the middle. Belief and unbelief. Go back to verse 27 of this text. And I want you to notice four words. As I read the text, see the words come up. The word warn. The word hear. The word repent. The word persuade, persuaded, or believe. I'm going to begin reading in verse 27. I want you to see these pop to the surface. And he said, I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. 
But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded. They will not believe. They will not trust and have faith, even if someone rises from the dead. This is a pivotal conversation. It's a pivotal subject. Hopefully in your life, the pivot moment. It's the place where all the promises and all of the curses are bilateral and available to all of you. You can choose heaven, you can choose hell. You can choose Christ, or you can choose a Christless eternity. It ought to make you stop and pivot and go the other way. When I was a young pastor in Oklahoma, we, went, we had a men's retreat one weekend. Had 100, 150 men in that retreat. And uh, it was quite an incredible time. It was kind of in the falls getting cold. And we had a big fire built in the barn, large barn. And uh, we cooked our meals in there. And I remember that Saturday morning, it was very cold. Guys had been sleeping in sleeping bags in the back of trucks and campers. It's wherever guys sleep, you know. Can't have a women's retreat like that, but you can have a men's retreat like that. So I remember getting up and going into the barn where the fire was and we were preparing breakfast. We are going to have a couple of sessions then go home. And after being in that barn for a little while, all of a sudden somebody came running in and saying, we found Rob outside. Now Rob was about 30 years of age and he was a, a member of our church and he'd come to the retreat. And they found his body outside in the field in the deep grass where he'd fallen. Unbeknownst to most of us, Rob uh, had diabetes and so he had an insulin attack. And there he fell in the field and was laying in that field for quite some time. He was, by the time he was discovered, discolored, blue in the face, no vital signs, not breathing, couldn't feel a heartbeat or a pulse. So a number of us ran out there to see what we could see. And when we saw him, we thought, he's gone. And I was a young pastor. I didn't really know what to do. We had a few firefighters that were with us because they were members of our church and they knew what to do. They went right to work on him. And so I gathered the rest of the men around and we began to pray for Rob. We began to shout at him. We began to call at him, but he didn't respond in any way. And we began to pray. Now, when you're praying for a miracle from God, you really kind of expect a positive miracle. You expect somebody to pop up smiling, take a big gulp of air, and we're all blessed. We're all thankful that Rob's alive and all that. But that's not how this went down. As we began to pray and as those firemen began to work on his body, all of a sudden, Rob opened his eyes and sat straight up and began to scream at the top of his lungs, no, no, over and over and over. And I got in his face and I tried to talk to him. I tried to get him to connect, look at me in the eyes. It was almost like I wasn't there. He couldn't see me. He was in some other reality. And he kept screaming, kept screaming until the ambulance arrived. And they immediately strapped him on a gurney and put him in the ambulance. I got in the ambulance. He, he was loud. He was screaming. He was, he was in turmoil the whole time to the hospital. And after a few minutes, they'd revived him. They put him on oxygen. He began to breathe again. And when I went back into that place where they were working on him, his eyes were again uh, recognizable. And he could recognize me. He was beginning to talk a little bit after they got him off the oxygen tank. I said, Rob, what happened? He said, John, I was in hell. I was in hell. And he began to describe what he experienced. And he grabbed me by my coat and he pulled me close. And he said, you have to help me put my faith in Christ now. He knew the terminology. He knew what he needed to do. But he also knew he had never done that. And he grabbed me and said, lead me to Christ right now. And I have to tell you, it was the fastest sinner's prayer I've ever prayed in my life. 
Didn't take much. He was desperate. He was ready. You know, the interesting thing about that experience, I was a young pastor. I kind of wondered, is that real? I mean, you'd have to wonder, just sitting there listening to my story, is that real? But everything he said that he experienced, everything that he described as having realized that was going on, fit to a T, every description in the Bible about hell, even this one we've just read today. I believe it's a very real experience. I believe that day, Rob gave his life to Jesus Christ. He lived another 30 years. This was about 35 years ago. He lived another 30 years. And uh, when, he, uh, when he died, I remember his funeral. And his wife told me, she said, you know, after that moment, Rob lived like a man who loved Jesus. He lived like a man who was really, really, truly born again. She said, I'm so thankful for that day out in that field when Rob came close to death, but God spared him because this man gave his life to Christ. I want to tell you, if I'm in that situation, I'm going to give my life to Christ as soon and as quickly as I possibly can because of the realities of heaven and hell are extremely, extremely real. Now, I want to pause just a moment. I want you to look this way. The reality of heaven and hell, the words of Jesus, no less, the experience I just shared with you, the facts. There's no greater reason for gospel urgency than heaven and hell. No greater reason for you to be concerned about other people who don't know Christ. No greater reason for you to reach out to people that have never heard the gospel and have a conversation with them, a pivotal moment for them to realize that there is hope in Christ and there's no hope without him. But I also want you to know today there's no greater reason to make a personal decision for Christ today yourself. The question is incredibly important today. Will you believe in Christ? And will you receive the gift of eternal life? I'm going to ask that you bow your head for just a moment. And I want to speak to you as personally and as individually as I can. And I don't want you to worry about anybody else in the room at this moment. I want you to be concerned just about your life. I don't want you to move. I don't want you to leave if at all possible unless there's some emergency. Don't leave. Don't leave. We're not talking about just concluding a worship service here. We're talking about an invitation to life or death. And I want you to know today as you stand before God alone, spiritually speaking, you'll stand before God physically one day. Just you and God. There won't be you and your friends. It won't be you and your peers. It won't even be you and your family. It won't be you and your church. It'll be you and God. And the Bible points out very plainly the mercy of God, but it also points out plainly the justice of God. You can't have one without the other. That's who God is. And God is calling to you all day long with his mercy. He's waiting all day long to show his loving kindness, to show his forgiveness to give you gifts of eternal life. But the moment you see he's living, that, that offer is over. That offer is over. The moment you die, it's no more. So my admonition to you today, my encouragement, I even would beg and entreat you today, give your life to Christ. If there's any doubt at all, any doubt at all, give your life to Christ now, here today. When Rob grabbed my coat, drew me near, I didn't mess around, man. 
I said, well, let's pray right here, right now. And Rob passionately invited Christ into his life and never regretted it. And neither will you. The only thing you'll regret is walking out of here without Christ. The only thing you'll regret is living and dying and finding an eternity without Christ. This is the reality of heaven and hell. Today, if you've never made a decision to follow Christ, today's the day. If you've even got doubt in your mind, I'm not really sure. At some point, I think I put my trust in Christ, but I can't see a difference in my life. I don't know if it's real. Then today, remove that doubt. Remove it today. Drive the stake. You want to be able at the end of the day to say, I don't know what happened to me a few years ago, but I know what happened today. I know today I drove a stake in the ground. I know today I put my faith and trust in Christ. I have no doubt from this moment forward. I'm going to ask our prayer counselors to come to the front and stand by me up here. I want you to make your way to the front really quickly, if you would. Come on. It's done and just be ready for a pivotal conversation with those that want to respond today. And I'm going to do this in this way. I'm going to lead us in the prayer, the kind of prayer that you can pray right where you are. And you can place your faith and trust in Christ right here, right now. Then I'm going to invite you to come and to share that with one of our counselors today. Just come and say, today I made that decision. They will help with the conversation that needs to be had about what that means, about what's next. They want to help you with that. But it's your decision today, and I want you to make it in just a moment. In a moment, we'll stand after that prayer, and we'll sing together. We won't leave. We'll sing together, and we'll sing a couple of stanzas of an invitation song. And I want you to respond during those invitations. Choose heaven or hell by choosing Christ or not. So here's the prayer. If you've got doubts or if you know that you need to make this decision, you can pray this prayer right now. You can pray it silently while I pray out loud. And I promise you, God will hear you. And then I'm gonna encourage you to respond to me. I'll, let you ask, I'll ask you to let me know you've made it. Then I'll ask you to respond publicly by coming down. Here's the prayer. Say it in your heart to the Lord if you're in that spot today. Dear Lord Jesus, today I know that you died on the cross for me. Today I realize the importance of making this decision and knowing it's real. So today, I choose to trust you by faith with what you've done on the cross for me. I turn away from my sin and everything else I've trusted in. And I put my faith and hope in Jesus alone. I ask you to forgive me of my sin and give me the gift of eternal life. Today, I ask you to be my Savior and today I ask you to be my Lord. I am choosing to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. With heads bowed, eyes closed, I want to ask you to do something for me before we sing. If you prayed that prayer today, you made that decision today, would you just lift your hand, let me be able to see and hold it up for just a moment. I want to know, did you make that decision today? I see some hands, I see several. Keep it up for a moment, several hands, several hands. I want to tell you, nothing but rejoicing takes place when we see people make decisions for Christ. 
Nothing but rejoicing. Nobody makes fun of that. Nobody mocks that or ridicules that. We rejoice because what an amazing decision. What a pivotal moment. More important than any other moment in your life is this moment. Go public with this. Don't hold back. Tell somebody, and I want you to do that right when we stand and sing. You walk forward, take the hand of one of these individuals and say, I had a pivotal moment with Christ. I'm coming to him today. Are you ready? Let's stand together. Let's sing.